When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Here we go. The official show on the Fish Drives podcast channel. I'm Eli Sussman, the managing editor of Fish Stripes, where we cover the Miami Marlins every day in our own way, even in the midst of a week-long seven-game losing streak. We're still here for you, so check out all that stuff on fishstripes.com. Go to fishstripes.com. If you enjoy listening to the pod, take a few seconds, go to Apple, find us there, leave a rating and review. It would mean a lot. And it's part of our campaign between now and the end of the 2021 regular season. For every new rating and review that we receive on the pod, that's an extra dollar being donated to the Players Alliance. You can find more about that great organization at theplayersalliance.com. Not a whole lot of new stuff to say about the 2021 Marlins. Very few positive stuff to say, at the very least. Other than Sandy Alcantara is amazing it's nothing new. I'm kind of probably at this point last year, I reached the state where you can never bet against this guy. Every single season, he does a little something new to get even better. Uh, we've been through some of his developments here on the pod this season, and he ate through another masterpiece on Sunday. One home run that just snuck over the wall, another mistake that was a no-doubter. Other than that, Lights out and in the process striking out 11 Cincinnati Reds, setting a new career high in that category. Of course, he didn't get any run support. That's always the case, it seems, when he takes the mound, uh, especially on Sunday. The trend is uh, it's pretty incredible how he seems to step up his game on that particular day of the week. For as high as we are about some of these up-and-coming Marlins pitching prospects, some that are about to debut, some that should debut next season and beyond, it's a really great, legitimately great strength of the organization. I don't think you could count on any of them to be the type of all-star, ace-type pitcher that Sandy already is. I'm confident that he's going to keep trending upwards. I would highly, highly recommend that uh, the Marlins find a way to hold on to him through his prime years. He is just entering his Prime. It's a privilege to watch every fifth game. To see him do this, we get to watch him, according to my math, seven more times, fingers crossed, assuming no injuries, setbacks between now and uh, the end of the regular season. So savor all that stuff. It's, it's been awesome, and uh, I feel happy for him that one way or another, he's going to get a nice pay raise heading into 2022. For most of this pod, 
I don't want to talk about the, the Marlins. I want to talk about an organization that the Marlins should aspire to be like. The common comp that is thrown out there uh, for this organization is the in-state rivals fellow franchise, the Tampa Bay Rays. People look at the Rays, who just made it to the World Series last year, who have a very strong chance of making it this year, and who do it on a shoestring budget. They see that as the model for what the Marlins should be, hopefully could be. Uh, to me, I've always felt that the Rays are just an anomaly. I mean, they run their organization unlike anybody else from both an analytical and a personnel standpoint. And in a lot of ways, it's a positive. In some ways, I find it to be setting baseball back in certain ways. Like, all in all, it's it's an obviously nice standard to aspire to. It's just that it doesn't seem realistic to me. I don't think what they do is really replicable with other organizations. It is that unique. Instead, I would think that the Marlins want to set their sights on a team in their own division, leading their division right now by a surprisingly large margin. All of a sudden, the Atlanta Braves. Um, as we're recording this, they are pretty much pretty close to undefeated in August. They have been baseball's best team this month. They are riding a nine-game winning streak, which, by the way, matches the longest winning streak the Marlins have ever had in franchise history. Can you imagine if the Marlins went on a nine-game winning streak, how crazy we'd be? Because that's something that they never, <laughs> Marlins have never crossed that threshold before. And the Braves are doing this, of course, without Ronald Acuna Jr. And you know that. You, if you, you're probably watching firsthand when he suffered a season-ending knee injury at Lone Depot Park. They've been missing several key pitchers this season. Um, they've had some prospects that they were expecting to get a lot from who haven't panned out. And yet here they are, playing at an incredibly high level, entering this new week with playoff odds, depending on where you look, at least 80%, and almost all that about winning the division, but all of a sudden, the wild card is actually a fallback for them if in case one of these other teams in the East somehow like clicks just in time. They're in a nice, pretty spot, very likely going to win their fourth consecutive NL East title. You travel back in time to one year ago, and what was the conversation? It was a lot of... The Marlins are, quote, closing the gap with the Braves. You remember that? I mean, ultimately, the Marlins finished second in the division. It was four games back at the end of the season. And there was a point entering, I think, the final week of the season where they went to Atlanta uh, on the road for four games with a mathematical chance of actually, you know, stealing the division from the Braves. They did not do that. And really, ever since then, I just think it's been crystal clear that the gap hasn't closed much at all. There have been some nice moments, of course, during that 2020 regular season. Uh, even earlier this season, there was that series in Atlanta where the Marlins nearly swept a four-game series from the Braves in, uh, I believe that was in April of this year, where the Braves got off to that slow start, and the Braves were pretty mediocre for the entire first half of the year before finally turning it on. I want to get into how they turned it on, how they've done this, how they've, you know, in recent memory, you know, as almost as long as the Marlins have been in existence the Braves have ruled the division and they're doing this um what they're doing in this current era even though it hasn't resulted in any trips to the World Series much less any titles it's extremely impressive and I think there are some lessons that can be learned from what they're doing that's an interesting question it's been talked about a lot that's an interesting question they entered this year with an opening day payroll of 131 million dollars 
And I was surprised to actually check that that is a franchise record for them. They're spending more than ever before, yet that number doesn't blow you away. You may, you, you probably don't think about this much because the Marlins are never anywhere close to this conversation, but the luxury tax threshold this year is, what, right around $208, $210 million. So the Braves are not even two-thirds of the way there. They are a mid-market team. For as much history as they have and for how as much success as they've had year after year after year for like especially the last 30 years winning the division in the majority of those years, they've never had to break the bank to do it. Uh, some of their recent full seasons prior to 2021, their payrolls kind of floated in that $115, $120 million range. It's very middle of the pack by Major League Baseball standards. And they haven't been perfect reaching this goal for sure. Um, more than a few of the prospects that they've had have not panned out despite a lot of hype. They've made some more than a few whiffs in free agency. Just looking at the past few years, uh, they, after a great year from Marcelo Zuna in 2020, they brought him back for this year. And for both injury and off-the-field reasons, that is a disaster. It got overshadowed, of course, by the pandemic and by some of their other young pitchers, but they gave Cole Hamels a big one-year contract in 2020, and he got hurt in his first start and never got back to them. Uh, he might never actually pitch again in the majors, as it looks like. We'll see. This past offseason, they signed Drew Smiley to a three-year deal that raised a lot of eyebrows, and it has not worked out either. He's got a fielder independent pitching well over five. He's a below-average starter that they're still stuck with for—oh, I should correct myself. That was just a one-year deal for Smiley, but it was still like a big salary considering his very mixed major league track record. Um, so he doesn't even really have time to salvage that deal for them, although he is in their rotation right now for the moment. Uh, Will Smith is the one that they gave a multi-year deal, their, their closer, really. And they that was prior, I think it was even prior to this year. Um, he, he hasn't been great. He's been a very ordinary late-ending reliever that is making really close to top dollar for a closer in today's game. They've, they've made their mistakes, um, but it's also a lesson that you don't need to shoot more than 50% on your free agent signings to get to improve through that avenue. You know, despite those mistakes that I just mentioned, they also brought in Travis Darno with a free agent deal and very recently just extended him for two more years, uh, a deal that very concerning if you're a Marlins fan, considering how well Darno has been hitting against Marlins pitching of late, how he's at a position of need for the Marlins as a catcher. There's very few desirable ones that will be on the free agent market this upcoming offseason. Charlie Morton, they picked him up on a one-year deal, and he's been great for them. He's been arguably their most valuable pitcher this year, aging extremely gracefully. So just getting back to the payroll... 131 million entering opening day this year. I guess that will go up a little bit before the end of the season based on some of the trades they made that we'll get into in a moment. That's a lot lower than these other NL East teams. We, we kind of put them in one bucket entering this year. Remember, it felt like all of them had some aspirations of being good this year. They were spending a lot of money to do it. Um, the Mets have been flirting with that luxury tax threshold up near $200 million all year. The Nationals and the Phillies were not that far behind either 
and yet the Braves are kind of in the middle. <laughs> they, they're showing that you don't need those ridiculous resources. You don't need your ownership to kind of run the team at a financial loss potentially in order to contend. Like There is a smart middle ground that they have absolutely nailed that should not be out of reach for the Marlins. The Marlins, just for reference, I believe they entered this year right around $57 million in payroll, depending on exactly where you look. It was it's not, not really above 60, not even half of what the Braves were spending. And it's been a trend where they continue to dip that spending every single year since new ownership took over. Say what you will about Loria and how at times he certainly penny-pinched with the way he built the team. Uh, this new ownership is even more frugal right now, despite the fact that they just re-upped on a new TV deal, that they finally got the naming rights deal for Lone Depot Park, and that Major League Baseball in general has some very lucrative TV contracts as a brand. They get benefits from revenue sharing. It's it's really hard to excuse the fact that they didn't put simply more resources into the Major League payroll for this year, um, saying that just getting close to the middle of the pack can do a lot of good for you. It leaves you that margin for error that the Marlins just don't seem to have um, because they choose not to have it. Getting into some of the individual guys that have made this run possible, again, we're talking about the Braves and the fact that they are in prime position to win their fourth consecutive division title. The Marlins, of course, have never won a division title in nearly three decades of existence. Most of it comes down to their homegrown position player core, Freddie Freeman, National League MVP last year, uh, Ronald Acuna Jr., who was one of the front runners to win MVP this year if he didn't have that knee injury, Ozzy Albies, who is one of the better second basemen in all of baseball, with Albies and Acuna not even in their primes yet, and with Freeman kind of right in the middle of his prime. I also wanted to mention Julio Tehran. You remember him. I mean, he's pitched against the Marlins almost as much as anybody in, in history. He's no longer with the team. Um, he kind of fizzled pretty quickly. But that was another guy that they originally signed, that they developed in the Braves system. And what also ties all these guys in common is that they got that pre-arbitration long-term extension. The, Mar the Braves locked them up really early once it was apparent that they were impact players. I mean, it, it varies a little bit with guy to guy. Uh, Okunia, of course, had an incredible rookie year that uh, really burst onto the scene. Yeah, I guess, and Friedman was in the same category. They signed him in his final year of pre-arbitration eligibility when he broke out as um, an MVP down-ballot vote-getter, when his power really started to pop after some questions about that early in his career. With, with Ozzy Albies, he was coming off an all-star season. And with Julio Tehran, um, I mean, you could say he's the one deal that didn't age super gracefully. He kind of plateaued in his mid-20s and then regressed in his late-20s, but they still got excellent value for that deal to get him most of those years between like $2 million and $10 million, where even if a guy is just an average Major League Baseball player, you're getting a fine value out of that. So much is put on the importance of being able to draft and internationally sign players that, that are the right players. Um, we talk, we always think about guys in other organizations that, ooh, do the Marlins have enough prospect capital to acquire that guy? Uh, fan graphs every single year, they have their trade values column where they rank the top 50 players in Major League Baseball according to trade values. A couple Marlins are, were on that list this year. I know Trevor, I think both Trevor Rogers and Pablo Lopez 
were right around the the very bottom of that top 50. But once you move like further up there, even the top 30, especially the top 20, uh, that's where guys like Acuna and Albies both are right now. Um, you, you shouldn't even really dream about targeting those guys as, as trade targets because they're untouchable. That's exactly what every team aspires to get. Um, an everyday player who has like very like clear all-star potential, if not higher to that, and being able to extend their team control even beyond when their free agency would naturally occur. Those guys are, that's exactly what you want out of a top prospect. Like the number, the top prospects in baseball, we could say like a Wander Franco, who was called up by the Rays um, a little over a month ago and is heating up lately. It'd be a great outcome for Wander Franco if he turns into like Ozzy Albies. They're very different types of players. It's not like the best comp, but that's that's what I'm saying is that there's there's no individual prospect in, in baseball, especially not in the Marlins organization right now, that you can say, wow, that guy's going to be, that has that guy is, uh, has Hall of Fame potential, um, that guy should be a perennial all-star. Like, that's not realistic to put on any prospect's shoulders. Um, we like to dream about their upside and their ceiling, and if everything goes right, um, the reality is that, you know, the Braves struck gold a few times here, and they capitalized on it by locking these guys up. Um, so a critical question for them in 2022 and beyond is whether Freddie Freeman sticks around because he's finally at the end of that early extension. He is now in year 12, his 11th full season, but year 12 overall in the major leagues, and he's finally coming up on free agency for the first time. It seems very likely that the Braves will pay up for that, and for the first time in his career, it'll be at a rate that might not be very efficient now that he's a couple of years into his 30s, that he plays a position at the bottom of the defensive spectrum. That's going to be a pretty fascinating decision for the Braves. Um, I think that's one thing I should point out here is that as impressive as this run has been for them the last four years, uh, they're not assured of sitting at the top of the division moving forward. I mean, there was some serious doubt about them entering this year as even being the favorite in the division, given some of these questions that they do have. But what I wanted to emphasize again is how important it is for the Marlins, if they want to, uh, to emulate that, to be to find those stars in as amateurs, to be able to have the infrastructure to identify those players and, of course, to pay what it takes to sign them, which usually isn't enough because Major League Baseball makes it levels the playing field in a way that the Marlins should be able to take advantage of it. You can only spend uh, $5, 6000000 million every year in international free agency. Your draft bonus pool in any given year is never more than $15 million to sign all of your draft picks. This is um, These are avenues that the Marlins can be as competitive as any big market team in order to, to acquire that, that young talent. And then it's up to them, of course, to develop it. And then it's up to them relatively early in their careers to have the conviction to sign them up, um, which brings me back to Sandy Alcantara, where he's kind of at that same stage of his career that Freddie Freeman was when Freeman got his first contract. Um, he obviously plays a different position. We're in an era in baseball where I think individual starting pitchers, there are some exceptions, but because teams go through more pitchers than ever before, um, the the investment that you need to make to keep a guy might not be as high as you'd worry about. Like they won't have to pay him Freddie Freeman money um, to to keep him around throughout the rest of his twenties and beyond. And they should really look into that because he's the type of guy that is sort of in this tier. 
Um, he's not Acuna. He's not Freddie Freeman exactly, but he has he continues to get better every single year. Um, and he's at a great place on his aging curve, and he seems to really like Miami a lot. Um, it seems like a great fit that there should be some mutual interest there. The one other point I wanted to touch on with the Braves is what they've done in trading pitching depth to address immediate needs on their big league roster. Before the Marlins became one of the really one of the top teams in baseball in terms of developing pitchers and immediately making them better almost as soon as they draft them or acquire them, like the Braves were a team that had that reputation. You only go back a few years, and they had one of the very strongest farm systems in baseball, and it was led by the fact that you could look at all their full-season affiliates from A-ball to AAA, and they were bursting at the seams with potential starting pitchers. Some of the guys that I'll name here, Joey Wentz, Colby Allard, Matt Whistler, Lucas Sims, Bryce Wilson. Uh, if you follow baseball really closely, you, you recognize most of those names. They've all been traded within the last few years in order to get veterans, to, in order to get Adam, du, uh, Adam Duvall the first time from Cincinnati, in order to get Mark Melanson, uh, Shane Green, Chris Martin, guys that at times peaked as very good relievers for them and helped plug some holes. And of course, Duvall, who turned into an ideal platoon outfielder for a couple of seasons there. And now he, he came back. And of course, in a non-pitching related trade, the Marlins as a farm system are kind of in a similar spot to where the Braves were like 2017 and 2018, having that it seems like it's a surplus of major league quality pitchers. Some questions about their upside. You know, the guys at the very top, as you've seen in my prospect rankings, Edward Cabrera, Sixto Sanchez, Max Meyer, Yuri Perez. Those are the guys that I, I think you consider close to untouchable, that you wouldn't trade them in order to get a like a reliever or a platoon outfielder for sure. Their value is a lot higher than that. You move below that, and there are, I could go through dozens of names right now who are being groomed as starters in the minor leagues, the majority of whom are having a lot of success, and the Marlins just won't have space to use them all. They'll have to make decisions about who they think is going to come closest to reaching their major league potential, actually being a starter in the big leagues. And the surplus guys are the ones that you ideally for the Marlins within the next 12 months, really next 11 months, I'd say, prior to the 2022 trade deadline, they are prime pieces that you would use to make your major league team obviously better. They've been, Marlins have tried to like toe this line and be creative the last few years with some of these deals, acquiring guys like Alex Jackson from the Braves, who's like hasn't established himself at all, who is struggling to hit major league pitching in his previous cups of coffee and has continued to struggle to hit major league pitching since that trade from Atlanta. Uh, of course, I guess the, the most notable one was Zach Gallon for Jazz Chisholm, which ultimately may prove to be a win for the Marlins or something relatively close to a win-win for both sides. Uh, but it did subtract a pretty uh, valuable pitcher, a guy that I, I, there's very few in the organization right now that you would say are Zach Gallon caliber guy moving forward. Like sometimes you just need to be more black and white. You need to trade the guys that are unproven for the guys that are proven at positions of need. 
I hope to see a lot of that this upcoming offseason and in 2022 if they're fortunate enough to even like be relevant midway through the season. Those are the guys that I think you absolutely need to make decisions on in order to yeah, build a well-rounded organization and one that is not losing seven straight games, um, <laughs> losing almost all their games really of late at the major league level. How are the Marlins doing on their mission to be a sustainable contender like the Braves um, with that emphasis on being able to draft and sign amateur players and get them in the right positions and then complement them appropriately with these trades on the margins and with some enough balanced free agent spending that you miss on some, but you win on some. And ultimately you wind up with a pretty complete team as I said, on a middle-of-the-road budget, nothing too exorbitant that the Braves are doing. Well, on the amateur side, you need to be slightly encouraged by what they've done these last few years under the new front office. 2018 draft is where we'll start because that was the first one after the ownership change where the Marlins inherited a middle-of-the-road 2017 team, which dropped them in the draft order to number 13. They did not have a particularly big draft bonus pool that year. Uh, the best player to this point at the major league level that they drafted in 2018 is unfortunately not on the Marlins anymore. That's Alex Vesia, uh, who is his first haste of the big leagues with the Marlins and then with the Dodgers was very rocky. But if you haven't been paying attention over the last two months or so, he has been right up there with the most dominant relievers in all of baseball. I need to talk and write about him relatively soon because that was an interesting trade that they made, one that was relatively high on at the time for the Marlins flipping him for Dylan Floro, but the way it has panned out, of course, lends it to some second guessing. The big priorities for the Marlins in that draft class were Connor Scott in the first round, Osiris Johnson in the second, they had Will Banfield with a compensation round pick, and Tristan Pompey right after that at the top of the draft. They went position player heavy with some short-term concerns, of course, about their offense. Made some sense. And you fast forward now more than three years, none of those guys are close to being in the majors. Pompey technically has played for AAA a a few games this year, but not as an actual prospect. I would say that him of the four has actually panned out the worst, despite him being the one that was coming out of college and had that track record playing in the SEC. That his, I don't want to go too far into him, but the production just has not been there. Um, and I would say that he's the least likely one to eventually contribute to them in the big leagues. Uh, Connor Scott has been fine. I think that's the best way to describe it. You know, you'd say that comparing him to the average number 13 overall pick historically, he would stack up as right around the median outcome for him, where um, if I was to bet on it, I would say eventually he does make it to the major leagues, but it's no sure thing. And it's, it's definitely an open question as to whether he would be able to serve anything close to an everyday role in the major leagues, though he is with him and Osiris and Will Banfield. They're all still relatively young, all still in their very early 20s. Um, with, but with Osiris, you know, he's undergoing a position change right now. He's still at the low A level. Banfield has been at high A all year. He's still good defensively, but he can't hit. And at the moment, as I'm recording this, he's hurt. Um, go through the rest of that draft class, and there's there's not a whole lot of other bright stories. Um, Very few of them are any higher than double A, 
Uh, none of the pitchers from that draft class profile as major league starters. Uh, we could very realistically reach a point where the Marlins only get maybe two like viable big leaguers out of that entire draft class, and you need to do better than that if you are going to operate on a lower-than-average baseball operations spending budget. You need to do better. There's a lot of pressure on that. And it's too soon, really, to render a judgment on 2019 and 2020, for sure. I mean, frankly, it's a little premature on 2018, but definitely on the, on those last two, especially because of the canceled minor league season. You know, the 2019 draft picks are right now only in their first full professional seasons. It's been a mixed bag from that as well, where J.J. Blade at the top has very well documented that he has not been productive this year. He gave him a challenging assignment but he was someone that we'd expected to reach the major leagues perhaps by this point. And instead, you wonder whether or not he'll even be a triple-A next year or potentially have to repeat the double-A level. Uh, good stuff from Peyton Burdick at double-A and from Cam Meisner at high-A, but also guys that have more swing and miss in their game than Blade does or more than you'd like to see from a potential everyday player in the majors. And you go through the, the rest of that draft class, there are some other more good stories like Troy Johnston and Nassim Nunez, some hit or miss with him. Uh, on the international side, of course, the biggest splash they made since this ownership change was the Mesa brothers. Uh, Victor Victor, $5.25 million bonus. Victor Mesa Jr., a $1 million bonus. It happened pretty quickly in late 2019 that Victor Jr. surpassed his brother, as the higher priority prospect, and it's abundantly clear this year. Where now there are, there's only one level separating them, despite a, I think a five plus year age difference. It's incredible that they might actually be minor league teammates in 2022 at some point. Um, I mean that's mostly because Victor Victor has looked like a bust. He has not progressed anywhere. He, in his brief shot at Double A, he wasn't able to hit whatsoever. Since going back down to high A and repeating that level against much younger competition, he looks fine. Uh, again, it's that it doesn't tell you much when you're repeating, and when he still has so much of an issue making quality contact, um, they can still salvage that deal if Mesa Jr. reaches the big leagues and is something close to an everyday player. They definitely, but there's still hope, I'd say, for that transaction. And there are other good stories on that front. Namely, right-hander Yuri Perez, the guy who's already up to high A. That's probably more incredible than the the Mesa contrast between them is that Yuri Perez, who's even younger than Victor Jr., has already reached the same level as Victor's Victor. Well, there's almost a seven-year age difference between those guys and their their teammates right now with the Beloit Snappers. Uh, I'm very high as, on Yuri, as mentioned before, as you've seen on my top prospect list. So that's kind of one of those gems. Um, with the Braves, you know, I, I talked about just really three or four guys that you draft, that you develop, that you lock up long-term, that turn into all-star caliber, if not slightly better players. And Yuri Perez is one of those guys, potentially. Potentially. It's still so early with him because this is his first professional minor league season. It's There's a lot of time that he needs to adjust to to see how he handles older, more advanced competition. He is on a great start to that, um, but we're still at least two years away from seeing him in the major leagues. So it's, it's premature on that. There need to be other candidates in the organization. 
Um, and you know, potentially Max Meyer is one of those. We could see him a lot sooner than Yuri Perez for sure. And you know, there's like a tier below them of other nice prospects that I really like. Um, on the major league level, of course, there's there's Trevor Rogers and Jazz Chisholm, the both of whom have had good rookie seasons. Uh, Trevor, even more so than Jazz or just about anybody else, when he's been available to pitch, uh, and it looks like he'll be able to come back before the end of the year, he's been outstanding. A lot of he checks so many boxes that you want from a starting pitcher. He was deservedly an All Star this year, and and you feel like there's not much flukiness to it. He's going to continue to be pretty great moving forward, health permitting. So Trevor Rogers is, is a candidate for that, uh, but the sample's still relatively small. Uh, the, the the previous half generation of acquisitions. Um, of course, from Lewis Brinson and Isan Diaz um, on the pitching side, uh, Eliezer Hernandez. Like, there's there's a lot of decent guys in there that don't really get you super excited. You know how high I was on Brian Anderson, and he has not had a good year. It's been shortened by injury, of course, but in August, it's right up there with really the worst month of his major league career. He's just not hitting at all. And it's hard to really sugarcoat that or come up with excuses for that. He's at a stage of his career where he's, you know, already one year into arbitration and he will be again next year. And that's something that, of course, we'll be unpacking on Fish Stripes is exactly where they stand with BA at a position where the Marlins don't have any really solid backup plan at third base. He's at a stage where he's going to be making more and more money, uh, but his production particularly of late, brings into question as to exactly where that ceiling is and whether it is worth extending him. That's something I'll go into a little bit more, of course, as the season winds down. So, you know, you, you see some good stories in here with the Marlins, um, but it's they still seem to be pretty far away, right? Um, and the way that they close that gap um, would have to be by spending some money. They enter next year with so few commitments on the books. Uh, they're going to have Miguel Rojas for, I think, $5.5 million. Uh, they'll have Brian Anderson for about that same amount in arbitration. Sandy will get a little less than that in arbitration. Pablo, also a few million dollars. Um, final years of control over Anthony Bass, his final guaranteed year. Richard Blyer, Dylan Floro, like all these little $1 million, $2 million, $3 million here and there. Overall, like they'll head into this offseason with like a projected $45 million on the books, right around there, if you include all the arbitration eligibles. And even that might be actually a little higher than it is. They are near the top of the list in terms of financial flexibility. Now, we still have to wait and see exactly what the spending parameters are in Major League Baseball next year. That's what hovers. Over this rebuild is the new collective bargaining agreement where there are bound to be a lot of changes to the structure of Major League Baseball. Will those changes benefit small and mid-market teams or will they not? Um, historically, if you look at the trends in recent years, a lot of those changes have actually benefited small and mid-market teams. But everything is on the table and I will not even venture a guess as to exactly what the financial landscape of baseball could look like beyond this current season. The only obvious thing is that the Marlins could and should, under billionaire Bruce Sherman, be able to double you know their existing commitments. They should be able to, um, without without a 
a concern being able to get that payroll into the 80s, the 90s million dollar range, which kind of which is where it was after they made those first rebuilding trades entering the 2018 season. There's there's no reason at this point why they should be even more frugal than they were at the onset of all this. There are opportunities to improve. We'll, of course, get into a lot of that as the season winds down, as those free agent targets really present itself, as those trade targets present itself, guys that are already on fixed contracts that could make sense for the team. There are still enough question marks about the major league-ready players that you need to fill in some of those holes by going outside the organization. That's It's not exactly how the Braves did it, as I kind of went through. You know, they were set up really for this run in 2018, I'd say, when both Acuna and Albies made that great transition to the majors and turned into everyday caliber guys. The question with the Marlins are, are they just going to wait until that happens, cross their fingers, going into 2022, that Trevor keeps doing what he's doing, that Jazz continues to adjust, that... um, I don't even know what the realistic position players, I, I guess in the outfields, if you think Jesus Sanchez and Brian De La Cruz um, take steps forward, that Brian Anderson bounces back, um, Lewin Diaz at first base, that that's a guy that I like a lot and certainly has a nice all-around potential. Uh, if they do that, it's going to be really frustrating. It still might work. But it's really, it's a lower probability of success rate unless you combine that with some spending. Spend some money to bring this team closer. There's room for mistakes. You don't need to get every single move perfect. Um, Given the resources that this organization has, that every major league team has, including the Marlins, you don't need to get it all perfect, but there will need to be some moves made in order to even give them a chance of keeping up in this National League East so I went through a lot on that, <laughs> more, spending more of it on the Braves than on the Marlins, but I hope it was a nice thought exercise for you guys instead of focusing, of course, on the current team, which is, I think I lost count, but 23 games below 500 entering this off day. So enjoy your off day after listening to this pod with um, hopefully some non-Marlins related activities. We'll continue our coverage on the site. Um, for sure, we'll be leaning more into prospect coverage over this next month plus um, about what's coming next and guys, how those guys fit into the near and long-term future of the team. It's still going to be a fun ride, believe it or not. You might not believe that, but it's going to be fun the rest of this way as we look at the franchise from all angles on Fish Drafts. I'm Eli Sussman. I appreciate the support. Go Fish! Go Fish!